We're in the book of Philemon. This is part five of our journey through the book of Philemon. One of the things about Lynchburg City Church, we love to go through books. We love to go verse by verse by verse by verse and, and squeeze the truth out of these verses like a sponge. And tonight is part five of our journey through this book. It is my final sermon that I'll be preaching from the book of Philemon. And uh, someone asked me, they're like, are you guys going to have service next week? I'm like, of course we're going to have service next week. So case in, that was a question because um, it's Easter. Yeah, we'll, we'll still be having service. And we'll begin. I don't know. People have asked me what's going to be the next book. I'm guessing somewhere in the Old Testament. And no, I haven't decided a book. So stay tuned for that. It's TBD. If you're here for the very first time tonight, um, or at least the first time as part of our Philemon study, some of what I say may be difficult to grab onto. For the sake of brevity, I don't have time to make the at-length introductory remarks and comments that I did in Sermons 1, 2, and 3. Um, so there might be some awkwardness, I realize that, especially on the issues of slavery that come up. Um, as I said, I address those in great detail and length, and so if you'd like to just Go to SoundCloud, Lynchburg City Church, um, or the website, and you can just listen to the first 10 minutes of those sermons, part one and two and three, uh, for to get a, just a better explanation of this issue. Because th- th- I admit there's some awkwardness there. Um, but for the sake of brevity, I don't have a chance to go through and give that again tonight. But what I will at least give you is this. Um, Paul is writing this letter sometime between 60... 62 AD, he is writing this letter from Rome. If you're familiar with the story of Acts, he, we come to Acts 27, 28. Paul appeals to Caesar to have his case. He doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem. And so the governor tells him, well, to Caesar you appeal, to Caesar you shall go. And so he makes his way. He's shipwrecked on the way. Remember, he's bit by the, the viper on the island of Malta, eventually makes his way to Rome. So that's, that's where he's at right now. We're literally picking up right at the end of the book of Acts chronologically. And so he's there, and he's under house arrest. And so he awaits to have his trial with the emperor. And he writes this letter, 25 verses long, Philemon, to a man named Philemon. A man that we don't know a whole lot about, but by all indications, he met a few years earlier in Ephesus. Philemon, since that time, he lives in the ancient city of Colossae. And it's believed that Philemon had some wealth. He hosts the the church in Colossae in his home. But other than that, we don't know a great deal about this person. Now, the issue, the awkwardness surrounding this story, is that Philemon has a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus has fled from Philemon at great risk to himself, traveled some nearly thousand miles to Rome. And while in Rome, Onesimus becomes a Christian. He meets Paul. Paul and him forge a a really strong bond and relationship. Paul begins to mentor and disciple Onesimus, pour into Onesimus, But Paul ultimately knows if forgiveness or reconciliation is ever going to take place, Onesimus needs to go back to Philemon. And so, before he sends him back, he writes this letter, Philemon, gives it to a man named Tychicus or Tychicus or however you want to pronounce it, to escort Onesimus 
back the some thousand miles uh, to Colossae. It would have been very unsafe to send Onesimus back as a fugitive slave. They had professional slave catchers, and he could experience uh, something worse than death if he was actually caught by them. So he's being escorted back. Literally, Philemon gets a knock on his door. There's Tychicus, Tychicus, and he sees him there, and he's like, hey, I'm Tychicus, and he's like, I'm Philemon. He's like, this is a letter from Paul. And there's Onesimus, who I imagine is probably having an anxiety attack right now. He's a runaway slave, since slaves in that world were killed for far less things than running away and ripping off their masters. Um, and so he's reading this letter. He's reading this letter right there, probably in the presence of Onesimus in his home. And we pick up in verse 18. If he has wronged you at all, If he, Onesimus, has wronged you, Philemon, at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul doesn't want anything to get in the way of forgiveness, of reconciliation. He doesn't want anything to get in the way. If there's any problem... Charge that to my account. Put it on my tab. And so the question that arises from verse 18 immediately is, what exactly was the nature? What's the nature of this debt that Onesimus has? And how exactly has he wronged him? Remember back in verse 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, so there's the debt, charge that to my account. So let's answer the question, what's the nature of this debt? How has he wronged him? Well, what do we know? We know at least the facts are, Onesimus is a slave, a Philemon, he's left, he's fled, he's run away. He's wronged Philemon in the sense, at the very least, that he has betrayed his trust, that he has deprived him of his services. That at the very least, Philemon's probably had to make other arrangements using his time, his money, his own resources to account for Onesimus' absence. So we can say, at least to that extent, that he's wronged him and that he's deprived him of his services, having to use his own time, energy, resources to account for Onesimus' absence. And at least that debt, at the very least, is what we can surmise that Paul is referring to. And yet, I think it might be more than that. It was very common in the ancient world for runaway slaves to steal personal property and or money from their masters in order to fund their escape. Which is why many commentators believe that verse 18 is a reference not just to him depriving him services, whatever that would have accounted for added up to be, but also that he may have stolen personal property from him. So he says, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. If someone comes to you and they say, keep in mind, Philemon's been betrayed, trust has been broken by Onesimus. Someone comes to you and they say, hey, I'm really sorry because, well, let's use the example in the text. Say they they stole from you. That, That works well for the example because theft is usually tangible in substance. They say, hey, I'm really sorry that I stole from you. 
you'd probably take an intentional pause just to make sure that they had nothing left to say. Like, is, is that it? Like, you're, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you right. You're saying that you're sorry that you stole from me. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Because you'd probably wonder, right? You'd be like, is this just words coming out of your mouth or do you actually mean that? Because if you actually mean that, then certainly you'd at least offer to give back what you had stolen. Now, Philemon can, clearly, he can forgive Onesimus, but to rebuild trust for reconciliation to take place, that's going to be a little bit larger hurdle to overcome. So, Paul knowing this, Paul knowing the delicate nature of this entire situation, says, there's an issue? He says, if, because he's only heard Onesimus' side of the story at this point. So, if this is an issue, you charge it to me. I'll take care of it. Paul is so willing to get involved that he's, he's willing to like write a check, charge his card, like whatever you need me to do. I don't want, I don't want there to be any problem for you to forgive him. I don't want there to be any problem for you guys to move forward, to begin to re- rebuild trust, to have that reconciliation. So if there's, if there's anything holding you back, I'll take care of that. I'll pay that debt off. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He's a fugitive. In the eyes of the law, he's a criminal. He's not going to be able to pay back. He's not going to be able to pay back what? Whatever he stole, if we assume this correctly, that he stole personal property in order to fund his escape. And two, he's definitely not going to be be able to pay him back the time lost. He's a runaway fugitive slave. Paul knows that. And he knows that this is a difficult situation. I don't want Philemon to seem like someone that you can't relate with, like that person who's like, oh yeah, I'll forgive you, no big deal. I think this is a big deal. I think Philemon's been deeply hurt and betrayed. I've argued several times, if this was easy for him to just shrug his shoulders and forgive Onesimus, why bother writing the letter at all? This is difficult. Paul knows that, even without talking to Philemon, only talking to Onesimus. I'm sure Onesimus spilled his guts, told him just how everything went down. And so because of the difficult and delicate nature of the situation, he says, you know what, if, if that's a stumbling block for you, I'll just, I'll pay it. Of course, Paul is in Rome under house arrest. You're like, how is he going to pay this? Um, but we also know that one of the other letters that Paul wrote during this time while he was in house arrest in Rome was the book of Philippians. Quick note on the Philippians. The Philippians were pretty outstanding. Uh, from the Philippian jailer to Lydia, from Thyatira, they were all there in the, in the city. And unlike the Corinthians, who Paul refused to accept any type of offering, any type of financial help because like he was so worried about them. Um, they had so worried about them and all the dysfunctional stuff they had going on in their church. Like he, he wouldn't take anything from them lest they say he was mooching off of them. The Philippians were very different. When you read Philippians 4, 14 to 18, Paul acknowledges not once but multiple occasions where the Philippians sent him offerings to take care of him, to help provide for him, to pay his expenses. So much so that in Philippians 4, he says that, I'm not just supplied, I'm well supplied. Like, I got enough to pay the bills, plus even a little extra to put away in the savings account. And no doubt, that is how he would be able to say to Philemon, here in verse 18, charge it to my account. 
charge it to my account. Because Paul, he wants these two guys to be able to come together. He wants Philemon to be able to forgive, and not just forgive, but to begin to build a new relationship with Onesimus. And so we jump to verse 19. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. No more on that in a moment. But he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. He is in, he is willing to personally get involved financially for the sake of reconciliation. As one commentator puts it, and if you're a college student in here, you'll probably appreciate this. Verse 19 is Paul's promissory note. This is his promissory note saying, I'm taking care of that debt. I'm taking care of this tab. He says, verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, it might strike you as strange. Why would Paul need to say, like, I'm writing this with my own hand? Isn't that implied? Isn't that understood? Well, if you're not familiar with Paul and typically how he would write letters, he typically wouldn't actually write them. That's not to say that he wouldn't write them. That's just to say that he wouldn't write them, write them. And this is what I mean. Paul would usually dictate his letters out loud and someone would transcribe them, would write them down. And then for the signature block, he grabbed the pen and then just assigned his name. And there's different theories on why this was the case, why he didn't write the entirety of his letters. I was reading Acts chapter 25 this past week. I've been reading through the book of Acts. And he's there before the high priest being grilled. Apparently his tone was not as it should have been before the high priest. And so he gets like slapped in the face and they say, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? And Paul says, well, I didn't know it was the high priest. I didn't know it was, it's like right there in front of me. Like, which leads many commentators to the conclusion that Paul suffered from very poor eyesight, which would stand to reason perhaps why he wanted to dictate his letters out loud. Now that's just a theory that we can speculate from. We can't say with 100% certainty, but either way, Paul would dictate his letters out loud. So at this point, he signs it. Now he signs his letters, but when we have letters, ancient world, we have introduction, body, closing. He always signs in the closing, and yet we're not to the closing yet, and he's picking up the pen and signing off on this. We're not to the closing, we're still in the body. He signs off at this point, probably grabs the pen from whoever is writing this down, in order to underscore his commitment. Like verse 19 says, promissory note. He wants Philemon to be clear, like, hey, I'm good for this. He's so concerned about reconciliation, so concerned about forgiveness between these two men that he wants to make sure that nothing gets in the way of that. That he's personally willing to take responsibility for the debt that Onesimus has occurred. And then something interesting happens in 19b. I will repay it. To say nothing, to say nothing, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. This is very interesting right here. 19b is a rhetorical maneuver on the part of Paul, in which what we see here, he says, I'm not going to say, I'm going to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Paul in 19b, he delicately protests against saying something. He's like, I'm not going to say that which he nevertheless ends up saying anyways. He, he says, I'm not going to mention it, and then goes on to mention it. 
It's a, it's a, maybe a similar rhetorical maneuver that you've experienced perhaps from your parents where you stand there and you say, hey, dad, mom, maybe when you were small children, not now that you're adults, and you stand there and you say, hey, you owe me some money because I just took walk the trash out to the end of the driveway. Oh, do I? Oh, okay. Well, should I mention how much money you owe me for room and board? Should I? Do you, do you want me to mention that? No, okay, I won't mention that then. All right, I'm not going to mention it. It's, it's funny because I'm reading this. I'm actually laughing out loud as I'm, I'm preparing for this passage. I'm like, he's delicately protesting against not saying anything and then mentions it anyways. And the thing that he mentions, of course, is perhaps the most significant. I'm not going to say anything of you owing me even your own self. Verse 19 is why it's argued that Philemon was introduced to Jesus directly by Paul. That Philemon became a Christian as a result of Paul's ministry. It's believed in Ephesus a few years earlier. Therefore, we, we could apply to our thinking like this. Philemon, whatever material debt that Onesimus has incurred, whatever material debt that Onesimus has incurred, then surely, surely the spiritual debt that you have to me for being the one to introduce you to Jesus, surely that would cancel out, if not more than compensate and take care of this. As one commentator puts it, Philemon is turned from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses. He is under a limitless obligation to Paul. Think about your own self, right? We have a debt that can never be paid. Thankfully, it was paid for us. The debt that Philemon owes to Paul, he can never repay him for his preaching, from his discipleship, to introducing him to his Lord and Savior. He can never repay that. He is under limitless obligation to Paul. And so he continues in verse 20. Yes, brother Philemon, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Pause. I want some benefit from you and the Lord. The word benefit here, very, very rare, uncommon word, only used once in this grammatical way within the entire New Testament, which leads many commentators to believe that there is an intentional play on words by Paul at this point. A pun, you might say, because the word benefit that's being used here has many similarities to the word onesimus, which means useful. In other words... Paul very well may be saying, you, Philemon, be some benefit to me. You, Philemon, be useful to me. You, Philemon, be Onesimus to me. I want some benefit from you, Philemon. I want some benefit from you. And he goes on to say this, refresh my heart in Christ. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, we've heard of Heart, and we've heard of refreshing already mentioned in this story. You go back to verse seven of this story. 
And we learn a little about Philemon. That Philemon's not just the type of God who says, hey, I love Jesus. A lot, of, a lot of us say, I love Jesus, don't really care so much about the church, but I love Jesus. Philemon is not that type of guy. Philemon is the type of guy who says, I love Jesus, and I love all these people to my left and my right. I don't even necessarily know their names. I love them. That's the type of guy Philemon is. He is, he, he's like some, you know some people, they're just emotionally exhausting, and they drain you, and like every conversation is like, you got to like get your battle rattle all like ready to like rock and roll because it's just going to be like a nightmare conversation. You're like, Lord, help me. Like Philemon, you don't have to worry about that when you talk to him. Like Philemon's the guy that you go to talk to after you have those really hard conversations. Like Philemon's just so refreshing. He's so refreshing, so encouraging, so uplifting. I'm sure he's also safe for the whole family. He's just awesome. <laughs> he's great. And then you may remember in verse 12 when Paul, when, excuse me, when Paul highlights that ultimately is his decision to send Onesimus back, he says, I'm sending my very heart to you. Send a part of me with you. He grew, grew so fond of Onesimus. In verse 12, he says, I'm sending him back, sending my very heart. It was very difficult for him to part ways with Onesimus. And so here he says, refresh my heart. So which heart? My heart or, or my heart that I sent to you, Onesimus? I think the answer is yes. Paul's saying, you want to refresh my heart? I want benefit from you. I want you to refresh me. You're refreshing all the other believers there in your church, your local church there in the city of Colossae. I want you to refresh my heart. And the best way you can refresh my heart is by refreshing my heart that's there before you right now. Keep in mind, he's reading this letter. Onesimus is probably, I don't know, maybe as far away from me as Andrew is sitting right there. Like He's saying, refresh my heart. And my heart is like right there in front of you. How does his heart get refreshed? His heart gets refreshed when Philemon gives the, the Christian welcome to Onesimus, Paul's very heart. Verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. What does that mean? Even more than I say? Paul has been rather ambiguous throughout this letter on exactly what he wants Philemon to do. It's, it's a vexing question that, what exactly is he saying that we're trying to sort through? In, in fact, back in verse 16, he says, I want you to receive him. Receive Philemon. As a slave, no more than a slave. Well, what does more than a slave mean? Doing, knowing that you're going to do it even more than I say. What does that mean? Well... I believe that what Paul is once again doing here in verse 21 is the same thing he was doing in verse 16, that he is hinting at the hope of potential legal freedom for Onesimus. Uh, I think that's what he's doing. He's hinted at it in verse 16, and if verse 16 has any connection to verse 21, then I think that's what he's doing here. do even more than I say. What does that even look like? I think the hope that he's hinting at is legal freedom ultimately for Onesimus. Now, with that being said, we need to make sure that we see legal freedom properly. If you were not here for sermons one, two, or three when I went into great detail about the issues of slavery and 
how do we understand that? Like, how can the Bible be good and true when it seemingly doesn't even address or condemn the, sla- the issue of slavery? It's going to be really easy for us to blow verse 21 out of proportion and for us to, you know, like, stand up with our thunder sticks, start cheering, and being like, yeah, like, free, free Onesimus. That's awesome. I like that interpretation, Pastor. That that's what he's hinting at. I like that. We can easily make that more than what it's saying. We can, we can easily make that a more important issue than it would have been for Philemon. We can easily make it a more important issue than it would have been for Paul. We can easily make legal freedom as even a more important issue than it would have been for Onesimus. And that might be hard to say and hard to wrap your mind around it. Like I said, especially if you weren't there for those introductory sermons on this issue. But people in that world, they wouldn't have thought about slavery in the same way that we think about slavery today. Regardless of whether he's hoping that in doing more than even I say is legal freedom, this stands true. And that is that regardless of whether he's free or continues in his role as a slave, the hope and the belief is that Philemon will treat him as a brother in Christ. As a brother in Christ. He wasn't a Christian until he left. And he's going back as a Christian. So that's the hope, that's the belief, that that is what's going to happen. Verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Paul says, hey, get ready, I'm coming. This suggests the strong possibility that he's he's going to come, and yet there's no certainty at all whether he's actually going to come, which no doubt is why he says to pray. Pray. Pray that I'm going to come. No doubt it's not a certainty. He hopes. So he says, pray. Uh, you know, I, this specific sermon is not like one that I wanted to devote much time on prayer. But man, oh, that we might have the type of prayer life that Paul had. And that was really more in sermon too. And, I, and here's just a thought. I can say a lot of things on prayer. I'll just leave you with this. If prayer ever seems to you like a distraction from productivity. If it ever seems to you like a distraction from productivity, I don't have time. If I do this, I gotta do this. Just remember that God can do more in five minutes of prayer than you can in five hours on your own. Hey, get a room ready, I'm coming. You're still in prison. Yeah, I know. But you pray, Colossians. You pray. And if God in His grace decides to answer your prayers, then I'm coming. I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to visit you. So get a room ready. Verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He doesn't mention Tychicus, Tychicus here, as he does in the book of Colossians, no doubt, because Tychicus is literally standing there in front of him right now and can give his own greeting. He's got the letter of Philemon, he's got the letter of the Colossians, he's there, he's got Onesimus probably still having a panic attack standing behind him, there in, in, in Philemon's living room. Doesn't mention him, but he mentions these five other guys. You go back to verse 23 and 24. He says, Epaphras, Epaphras, 
Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, Epaphras. Epaphras was born, bred, water-fed there in Colossae. He was born and raised there in Colossae. He was the pastor of the church that met in Philemon's home. Doesn't need much of an introduction. Philemon would have known this guy. He says, hey, Epaphras says hi. Oh, by the way, Mark, he says hi too. Some of you, you're really acquainted well with Mark. You were here for the sermon skit that we did. Mark, John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he's there with him as well. So is Aristarchus. Aristarchus, awesome, battle-tested warrior Christian. He was there in Acts chapter 19 during the riots that were happening in Ephesus. He was there on the journey going from Caesarea all the way to Rome when they were shipwrecked at Malta, when he was bit by a viper on the island, survived. He's currently there with him right now. And of course, Luke is the beloved physician the only, who, who wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, the only non-Jewish writer of Scripture, a Gentile, Luke is there with him, helping him out, and then he mentions Demas. Five names, one major contrast. A rather sad note. And that is the mention of Demas. It's sad because if you know the story chronologically, you know that when Paul writes 2 Timothy, this is now his second time in prison, and he's actually in prison when he's writing 2 Timothy. This has been about five years later, 67 AD. He mentions Demas, but not in a very good way like he is right now. He, he, he tells Timothy that Demas has left and abandoned me, Demas who was so in love with this world. Scary, right? He's described as a fellow worker here, and yet five years later, he tells Timothy, he's left me. 2 Timothy 4. He's left me. He loved, loved the world. And that's a constant temptation for all of us. See, for many of us, we live our lives in such a way that we have a foot in this world and a foot in the world to come. Because we like the world. We love the world. It looks good. It tastes good. It smells good. We love the world. And the world is constantly fighting for our attention and our affections, pulling us away from Christ. It is. John Piper, he says, the devil's mainly about bad things. Why? Because you can see the good, excuse me, he says the devil's mainly about good things. Why? Because you can see the bad things a mile away. The devil's mainly about the good things to keep you from the best thing, to keep you from Christ. The world is constantly fighting for our attention, our affections, pulling us away. No doubt, something that Demas is or will be shortly after he writes this experiencing. It's heartbreaking to think that here he's described as a fellow worker, and within five years, he's completely gone off the deep end. Terrifying. Scary. And when you think about this letter, the underlying theme throughout Philemon is forgiveness, even though the word's not even mentioned. But more to the point, more than just forgiveness, Philemon is about living your life in a countercultural way. Why? Because forgiving a runaway slave that's stolen from you is just crazy. The other slave owners in Colossae are probably scratching their heads saying, this doesn't make sense. What are you doing? You're just going to receive him back? You're just going to forgive him? What? 
We don't do that. Forgiveness, no doubt, is the theme that runs throughout this reconciliation, restoration, but more to the point, in a broader way, it's being countercultural. It's living differently as a Christian. Your life, whether the issue is forgiveness, whether the issue is something else. The world, the world doesn't need any more so-called Christians who look just like the world. The world doesn't need any more so-called Christians that look just like the world, that acts like the world. It doesn't need that. It needs Christians like Philemon, who goes against the grain, who, who swims upstream against the current, despite what everyone else is saying. I'm sure people are giving him crap and saying, you got to be kidding me. What's wrong with you? You're a moron, Philemon. Imagine that is probably the case. Why? Because runaway slaves are killed for far less things than this. Oh, I hope we don't forget, right? Forgiveness, yes. But being countercultural, yes. We're dual citizens, right? We live here, not our home. We live here, not our home. We are elect exiles. We're just passing through. I made this case early on in the sermons. When we talked about change and all the energy that we put into things. As we saw in this story, you want true change? True change, true change happens when God changes rebel hearts. That's where, where true change happens. It's, it's not if this person gets elected or this person gets elected. True change happens when the God of the universe changes rebel hearts that are opposed to him. From that and through that flows true change. Oh, man. We have a, a, a big God. Giant God. And we have a major debt that we can never pay because he sent his only son to come to live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died, to pay the price that we could never afford to pay. We can never repay him. And so the story, the book of Philemon comes to a close. The book of Philemon comes to a close at this point, but the story doesn't. I'll go off script. I have, no more, I have no more verses to go through. So what can we say? Did Philemon ever forgive Onesimus? It's highly unlikely that he did not forgive him. Like the, the fact that he forgave him is almost evident in the fact that this book made its way into our canon. It would have been almost unthinkable to think that this book would have been selected as one of the books to be a part of our Christian Bibles today if that hadn't happened. No doubt this letter would have been in wide circulation, not just within the city of Colossae, but within all the other surrounding churches. Did Paul ever come to visit? Well, church history says that he went as far west as Spain. But it's believed that before he made his trip out west to Spain that he went east, stopped at Colossae, and saw Philemon and Onesimus. Well, what happened to Onesimus? I can only speculate. So this is pure speculation according to some clues we have that church history offers us. Did he ever get his freedom? What happened to him? <sighs> Keep in mind the name Onesimus is very common. 
The name Onesimus is very common, however, about 50 years after Philemon was written. The church father Ignatius in Smyrna, on his way to martyrdom in Rome, he wrote a letter to the Ephesian church. And in that letter he writes this, and I quote, I received your large congregation. I received your large congregation in the person of Onesimus, your pastor, in this world, a man whose love is beyond words. He would have certainly been a very old man at this point in the story. I can't say with certainty that that's the same Onesimus, but man, I sure would like to think so. The story of Philemon comes to a close. And I can't help but think back to verse 19 of Paul's willingness as a minister of the gospel, as a minister of reconciliation, willing to put his really his money where his mouth was. It's a picture in many ways of Christ. We like Philemon, we like Paul, we like Onesimus have all incurred this great debt that we can never repay Ever! And thankfully, someone paid that for us anyways. Philemon, how are you just going to let Onesimus come back into your life? How are you going to let him off the hook? Why are you going to be so merciful? Why are you going to be so loving toward him? i got to believe this created an amazing platform for the gospel, for him to be and live counterculturally, because people just didn't do this and act this way and forgive runaway slaves. And no doubt, I imagine him saying, well, I'm able to do this because of what Christ has done for me. We have an amazing God, a giant God. A God, as we saw last week, who doesn't just govern the departure of our pain, also governs the arrival of our pain. A God who pays debts that we can never pay. So what are we going to do with that? If all those are to you as a bunch of Sunday school answers, then I would pray right now, where you're sitting quietly, that they become more than just facts about God, but that you begin to to feel the weight and the magnitude of them. Because knowing big things about God should result in a life that's drastically different than the world in every way. Forgiveness is just one of them. So as the band comes, I want to pray for us. God, we love you. I thank you for this beautiful, amazing story of Philemon and Paul and Onesimus. God, help us to be different. Help us to be different. Help us to look different. The world does not need any more so-called Christians that look and act just like everybody else. I pray, God, that that we would not just be consumeristic Christians who, who come and warm a pew on a Sunday and then just repeat it, but we're never actually the church together. But our lives might be different as the people of God. So that whether the issue is forgiveness 
Whether the issue is pride, whether the issue is something else, we might live in such a way that people look at us and they say, what's going on? Because we're so counter-cultural that we remember that we live here, we don't belong here. We are sojourners passing through elect exiles on our way to our real home. We're on our way, every single one of us, we're on our way to our real home for those of us who are in Christ like Philemon and Onesimus and Paul. So I thank you, God. The God who made this possible, who paid the debt that we could never, ever pay. All glory to you alone, Jesus. Amen.